You're listening to a special edition Economy Matters podcast produced by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. The Federal Open Market Committee concluded a two-day meeting the pace earlier of job today. growth has been strong. Downside risks to the outlook for the, the number of Fed officials. banking so system is large. We've come a long way since the darkest day of the financial crisis. Welcome to another Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta podcast. I'm Jessica Dill, Director of the Atlanta Fed Center for Housing and Policy. I'm here today talking with Dominic Pervian, Senior Financial Specialist with expertise in residential real estate. Hi, Dominic. Thanks, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Jessica. Glad to be here. I have you here today to talk about your recently launched Atlanta Fed Homeownership Affordability, or HOME tool. Um, when did you introduce the tool, and why did you create it? Well, the uh, the home tool was introduced at the beginning of this year, and it had been something that we had have been using internally. Um, I work in banking supervision here at the the, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. We track how uh, home ownership affordability normally as a, a leading indicator of the the health of the housing market. And so, typically, what what happens is housing becomes less affordable you have some sort of softening of, of credit. And so we pay attention to housing affordability because it lets us know kind of the, the trajectory of where we are and the overall health of the market. We decided to make it public for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, we wanna enable, uh, we wanna assist the public in assessing um, housing market conditions from the perspective that we have internally at the Federal Reserve. But we saw that some of the tools that are that existed currently on the market did not include some other uh, variables that we thought were very important in order to track housing affordability. Most most notably is being able to look at affordability at lower level geographies, including down to the, the county level. And so we we believe that um, introducing this tool and making it public was just people that are examining a housing market to better understand what affordability conditions are like, particularly at lower level geographies. So what does the home tool measure? And importantly, what doesn't it measure? So um, affordability is is uh, sort of a, a tricky thing to measure. Surprisingly, you would think it'd be a little bit easy, but there are several things that, that go into looking at affordability. So first of all, our measure looks at what the median income household can afford given the median price house and the current interest rate. In addition to looking at uh, the principal interest payment given the current interest rate, we also include uh, PMI, private mortgage insurance. We also look at taxes and insurance. Those measures collectively uh, encompass what a total housing cost would be for a household per month. We also estimate a, a down payment of about 10% when we calculate the, the, the principal interest payment. And so when you add that together, um, the total cost, the PMI, um, the principal interest payment, taxes, and insurance, the affordability for us uh, is 30% of income. So if, you're, if your total housing cost per, per year exceeds 30% of your income, then I, then that particular market or geography is considered unaffordable. If you if your total cost is below 30% of income, it's considered it's considered affordable. And so that's what it measures. It measures affordability based on the share of income that your total household, your total cost um, covers uh, per year. What it doesn't cover, what affordability doesn't measure is number one, 
how expensive a, a particular market is. So for example, there could be a, a market that is as more expensive, but actually is not necessarily unaffordable because remember um, affordability takes into account what the median income household can afford. So you could have a market, for example, like San Francisco, that's one of the most expensive markets in the country, but because incomes are higher in San Francisco, it still may not be as unaffordable as, say, a market like Los Angeles, where incomes are a little bit lower, even though housing in Los Angeles is, is less expensive than San Francisco. And so, again, affordability measures the share of income that goes to housing, but it doesn't necessarily measure how expensive a market is. It also doesn't measure available inventory. So you could have a situation where a market is relatively affordable, but it doesn't mean that um, there's inventory available at a certain price point that a household can afford. And lastly, it doesn't necessarily measure affordability for all households. So if you make the median income in a particular region, you may be, you may be able to afford to purchase a house. But if you make below the median income, then, you, then housing may not be as affordable for, for your household. And so you know, those are the, the main things that it, our affordability tool does not measure. And just to be clear, when you say it doesn't measure affordability for all households, this particular tool doesn't measure affordability for renter households, right? Right. So we're just we're just talking about home ownership. So this is uh, we, we do have some other tools that look at renters at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, but our our particular tool is just looking at home ownership affordability. Can you tell us a little bit more about the intended audience? So the uh, the primary audience, as we see it. Um, would include um, either public and private entities that are involved in evaluating housing-related issues. So it could be anything from a researcher um, at a university or a local government that's trying to evaluate market market conditions. It's obviously uh, entities like the Federal Reserve or banks or, or home builders that are trying to evaluate housing market conditions in trying to make decisions about where to lend or where to build or develop. It does have some utility for the average home buyer that's out there that is uh, looking maybe to move in a certain market or to make a decision on where to buy. And they are looking just generally where housing is more affordable given their current income. But generally it's, it's you know, our intended audience is more of, uh, you know, entities that are kind of evaluating overall market conditions. And just to circle back on that last point, it won't necessarily help someone who's looking to buy a house tell them whether they can afford a house, right? This is more for folks that are maybe considering a metropolitan area and trying to see which part of the metropolitan area is more affordable than others, generally speaking, not for their specific circumstance. Right, right. Um, there are some nuance once you, you know, so this is more of a 30,000 foot level tool um, now, if you make the if you make exactly the median income, it may tell you where you could afford to buy. But it's it's highly unlikely that you know uh, average home buyers looking at this tool is going to have they're going to be above the median or below the median, and it gives you, you know, kind of a general take on the the affordability in a market. And it it could very well be that a market may be unaffordable based on the median income, and you may make below the median income. It doesn't mean that there aren't homes available in that market for you to purchase. Uh, again, you know, whenever you're looking at the median or some measure of essential tendency, it doesn't tell you everything, but it just gives you what the, the center of the market looks like. And then, you know, the 30,000 foot view 
and then you kind of drill down to help you make uh, decisions if you're a home buyer or builder or developer or some of the other entities we mentioned. Thanks, that's helpful. So how would you say the home tool is different from other affordability tools that are out there? What sets it apart and why should someone come and use the Atlanta Fed home tool versus another organization's tool? Well, I, first I'll, I'll say that every um, there are a lot of tools out there that measure housing affordability and they all have some measure of utility and benefit. We didn't develop the tool because we thought that there aren't already good measures of affordability out there. Our tool has some nuances that I think make makes it distinctive and that perhaps provides some things that some other tools don't provide. So the, the first most important distinction, I think, is that uh, we believe our measure of, of affordability takes into account some cost of home ownership that some, that some other tools may not include. As I mentioned before, we not only look at principal and interest payments, we also look at taxes and insurance as well as PMI. And for the average household, you know, those, when, when they're thinking about affordability, they're including on taxes and insurance and, and other things beyond just the principal and interest payment. The other thing that, that makes our tool distinctive from, from other tools is we believe we make some more nuanced uh, assumptions about, uh, particularly around down payment requirements. So there are a lot of tools that use a 20% assumption of, uh, on down payment. And when we were uh, doing the analysis, we saw that on average, the universe of home buyers, the average down payment is closer to 10%. And so we use a 10% down payment because we think it's a little bit more realistic to the average home buyer. Uh, the other thing that um, makes our tool distinctive is that we use uh, household income versus family income. And this is a little you know, in the weeds, but there, there's some tools that look at the median family income to measure affordability. Now, families are defined as two or more people, two or more related people that live in a household. So you tend to get you know, more, more couples, dual incomes. And so the, the family income tends to be a little bit higher. However, when we were doing the analysis, we found that around 27%, uh, somewhere between 25 and 30% of home buyers are actually single person households. And so if you're just looking at family incomes, you would be excluding, at least in our estimation, you will be excluding a good, about a third of the market. And so we use household income, which includes families, but it also includes single person households that are a, a good portion of the home buyers. Lastly, uh, probably the most important distinctive uh, distinction in our tool is we go down to the to lower level geography. Um, so we're looking at uh, counties versus just metro areas or the nation as a whole. And so if you're doing an evaluation you know, of a market, um, the overall market may be affordable, but you may have some some counties within the market that are maybe unaffordable. And so it and this was done, you know, for us internally when we're looking at risk, you know, we have to look at risk at a you know, even below the county level down to the zip code level or even the, the um, census track level. So that gives you a little bit more nuanced picture of what's going on. And of course, we update our tool monthly, and there's some other tools that uh, have less frequency. And so we believe that all of these things make our tool a little bit more distinctive. Thanks. I think that's that's really helpful in understanding kind of the landscape of what's out there and then how our tool fits into that landscape. I wanted to move on um, from 
the actual tool to what the tool is telling us. As you mentioned in your earlier remarks, you said that we released the tool earlier this year. And um, for our audience, we actually released it in the middle of March, 2020. Perfect timing, huh? Perfect timing with when the coronavirus hit. And so we put out a lot of press releases, but we're not sure it really rose to the top of everyone's radar of what's what's happening because everyone was really kind of concerned about what's happening with the coronavirus and what impact is that going to have on households' um, income, on their housing situation. And so since coronavirus has hit, we've been tracking home um, ownership affordability through our home tool. What has the trend been in homeownership affordability? Has there been any movement in home prices, interest rates, household income that's been surprising to you? Yes, actually. Um, so many of our listeners might be aware, interest rates have, have uh, dropped considerably since the beginning of the, the pandemic. And anytime interest rates drop, that creates increased affordability for, for home buyers. However, um, there's several different variables that are all moving at the same time. So as interest rates declined, home prices have actually increased. And the reason why home prices have increased is related to inventory levels. And so uh, just, just to explain, you know, there, there was early on at the end of March and the beginning of April, a contraction in demand. There are a lot of people that um, were thinking about buying that delayed purchasing. Um, and so you, you you look at pending home sales, they decline, you know, sharply uh, at the end of March, the beginning of April. But at the same time, inventory declined. So there are a lot of people who were thinking about selling. They moved their home off the market. As the market, as demand has recovered, you know, beginning of, of May and going into June, uh, there just hasn't been enough inventory. And so the lack of inventory has created upward pressure on home prices. And so if you look nationally, the um, median home price for the U.S. is somewhere around, if you look at a three-month moving, moving average in May, it, it was somewhere around $290,000, the median home price. And that's higher than it's ever been. And so even though interest rates are going down, you know, home prices are going up. And so the net effect has been actually a decline in housing affordability. So our latest measure in um, in May that we just uh, just actually finished calculating yesterday, um, it shows nationally um, housing is unaffordable, and and then it is probably a, a more conservative estimate because you know we are, are in the process of reprojecting our our income assumptions, and so whenever there's a recession, you can expect you know households to have a contract experience a contraction in incomes, and so. Those two factors, home prices going up and income declining, has been more than enough to offset the decline in interest rates and, and made uh, home affordability decline overall. And just the, one other factor to mention, you know, credit has, has also tightened. And so there's been a higher down payment requirements from, from many lenders, also higher credit requirements. And so the people who are buying now are people that have maintained their, their income through the pandemic and also are in a good credit position to go buy. If you look to home builders, it has had a positive impact on demand overall. A demand year over year is much higher in, in May and June than it was in, in 2019. But you know it's difficult to say how well that'll be sustained moving forward now that we see um, conditions with the coronavirus uh, uh, kind of turning a little bit for the worse. 
but so right now those are uh, the, in terms of housing affordability so far the pandemic has actually the, the net result has been um, through the pandemic a decline in, in in overall housing affordability so there's been a decline on a national level but have you observed any divergence regionally in affordability trends across the country since COVID hit I, with our tool we can go in and look at different geographies and drill down. And so I'm curious what you're seeing on that front. Yeah, so I, I think overall, there are around 80% of the markets that we include in our survey are still affordable, just looking at our measure. Although you, you see the affordability declining, they're still, you know, in terms of the percent of income required to, to afford a house, it's still a little bit below 30% in most markets. And about 20% of markets were considered uh, un unaffordable. And, though, and it's not a surprise where those markets are. Most of your coastal markets in California and um, the Northeast, as well as in, in South Florida, are continue to be unaffordable. A little in our district, in particular, in the in the Southeast, only market that 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 kind of stands out in terms of a decline in affordability, surprisingly, is Augusta, Georgia where affordability declined about 3%, 2.8% in our latest index. And that was primarily because, as we mentioned before, an increase in home pricing. Um, but surprisingly, there are several other markets in our district that actually experienced an improvement in affordability, a pretty significant improvement in affordability. And so those markets include uh, Chattanooga, Birmingham, and Jacksonville, actually in the top five of, of the larger MSAs, MSAs that have over 500,000 people. Um, those three markets are in the top five in terms of improvement and affordability. And most of that is because home prices in those markets in, ha, has declined. And, and so a little bit of nuance, you know, I haven't really dug in the numbers to, to understand why home prices have declined in those three markets. But normally, you know, you, you you know, it, it could be an indication that the housing market has softened and as inventory sits on the market, people adjust their pricing. And so it, it could have resulted in some downward pressure on price, particularly that's that's unique to, to Chattanooga, Birmingham and Jacksonville. But, um, you know, the net result has been pretty sharp kind of double digit declines and double digit increases in affordability in those three markets. So... Since COVID hit, there's been a lot of talk comparing and contrasting this downturn with the Great Recession. As we think about affordability, does the home tool provide a his historical reference point and what, what can we glean from our tool in terms of how this downturn compares um, to the Great Recession, specifically with regard to affordability? So our tool goes back to 2006, so it would include uh, at least nationally, it goes back to 2006. So we can get a look at what was happening during during the uh, prior to and during the Great Recession. The big difference is that the Great Recession was a housing market related recession, at least in part. Um, where this recession, the downward trend is sort of unrelated to housing. So it's it's um, it's quite different. And if you just look at affordability, what happened during the uh, prior to the recession in 2008, if you go back to 2006, our tool shows that housing affordability had contracted considerably. And so we've had, we had several years prior to 2008 where 
housing affordability was below the affordability threshold, meaning more households were spending more than 30% of their income on housing per year. At the same time, credit loosened considerably. So we had a, you know, the last crisis was a subprime mortgage crisis um, in particular. And so as, as credit softened, eventually, you know, we had a, a rise in delinquencies and defaults. And that really precipitated a, a downward spiral in housing. It led to an increase in inventory and downward pressure on home prices. We've What we're seeing now is quite different from that. From the last crisis, we have not seen an increase in subprime mortgage originations. So on that side of it, we haven't really seen the deterioration of, of, of credit. However, where we have seen a weakness is on the debt to income side. And so we've been trying to make the point for the last, last year or so that even though we're not seeing, we didn't see subprime, an increase in subprime mortgages, we did see a deterioration in debt to income ratio. So more more households were spending a greater portion of their income to housing, and that was a direct result of a decline in affordability in many markets. And so, if you look at today, we're we're seeing, you know, we as I mentioned before, the Great Recession, we saw an increase in inventory. This time, we're not seeing an increase in inventory at all. Prior to the recession, affordability had declined, and then during the recession, because the increase of foreclosure inventory, we saw a pretty big spike in. And, and inventory as well as downward pressure on price. We're not seeing any of that today. Right now, prices are actually going up. We're seeing less inventory on the market. However, the one thing that we, we are paying attention to that might you know, uh, be a risk moving forward is, you know, there's, uh, and we really didn't have a whole lot of this in the last recession, is an increase in forbearances in, in government support that sort of forestalls defaults. So, you know, average homeowner can, you know, that's in a forbearance uh, based on the CARES Act, you have up to a year before you have to start making payment the payments theoretically. And so as a result, we've seen an increase in delinquencies, but most of the increase in delinquencies are due to the increase in mortgages that are in forbearance. The one thing that is concerning, and um, we're just starting to get a handle on this, that um, there the, the percentage of people of, of homeowners that are in forbearance that have been remitting payments has declined. So the, the I believe through the middle of June, only about 20, 25% of homeowners that are in forbearance have actually remitted payments. And that's down from about 46% in April. And so as the, as the pandemic continues and the economic crisis because of it continues, you know, we're starting to see home, home buyers, homeowners, uh, experience a little bit more of a, of a strain and not being able to make payments. And that may be an indication of long-term, a long-term increase in defaults. You, you, we would have to assume defaults, even with forbearances, we would have to assume defaults would increase at some point because of the, the sharp increase in unemployment. And so, so far, it seems like the, the uh, forbearances and government stimulus has, has helped to forestall the defaults, unlike what we saw the last time. But, you know, that may, as we continue, that may not be sustainable. So as a follow-on question, many are looking at lessons learned from the previous housing downturn. Are there any lessons that you think are particularly salient to discuss right now beyond what you've already mentioned? Well, I'll just reiterate 
we we tend to overlearn the lesson from the last crisis and we we tend to think that the new crisis is going to be similar to what we what we experienced before and so one of the lessons that we learned from the last crisis was subprime mortgages um, create a significant amount of risk if we aren't able to account for it and so in this crisis the the assumption um, it, not just in, not just now, but throughout this housing cycle, the assumption has been, you know, we don't have as much risk in housing because we have not been originating a whole lot of subprime mortgages. As I mentioned before, it's it's true if you look at the share of mortgages with FICO scores below 620, which would be considered subprime, we don't have a, a large share of originations that meet that definition. However, the risk is not in FICO scores, the risk to me is in debt to income ratios. The Dodd-Frank Frank Act initiated a threshold for debt to income. Regulators had set it somewhere around 40, 40, 43%. And if you look at the share of originations over the past year that had debt to incomes above 43%, um, it's been consistently rising. And depending on the market, um, in South Florida, for example, um, Miami-Dade County, over 65% of mortgages originated in 2018 had debt-to-income ratios higher than 43%. And if you look at the markets within our district that are, ex that are experiencing a high rate of, of delinquencies, they correlate with markets that have higher debt-to-income ratios. And to be clear, when we talk about debt-to-income ratio, ratios, we're talking about all debt, not just housing. So that would include credit card debt, auto debt, and any other kind of consumer debt, um, in addition to housing, is included in calculating debt-to-income ratios for households. And so the, the lesson to learn just looking at the last crisis is not to overlearn the lessons of the last crisis, to always be prepared for where new risk can, can arise in, in the market. And so if you're just looking at FICO scores, you would miss the fact that we have been creating risk in terms of debt to income for the for the past several years. And you know, it's not an issue until there's a sharp contraction in, in incomes. And so if you're if you're paying 50% of your income towards housing, which is above that 40, 43% threshold, you know, you you're fine until you lose your income. And then you know that you have you run the risk of uh, delinquency delinquencies or defaults. I will mention one of the reasons we are we are seeing an increase in delinquencies because of you know uh, because of the crisis and and because of uh, a lot of homeowners that are in forbearance. It's probably some somewhat muted because the government stimulus has really helped. If you recall, the CARES Act added an additional $600 to the um, unemployment uh, payments that, that households can get if you're unemployed. But those payments may run out, uh, are scheduled to run out at, at the end of this month. And if the government isn't adding additional stimulus, there are a lot of people that have been able to make their mortgage payments because they, they have that additional $600 that may not be able to continue to make payments. And so, you know, we're we're kind of in a wait and see mode. Um, but the expectation is, once households run out of money, either from a job or for some kind of government stimulus, then it, it's going to have a direct impact on their ability to pay, especially if a large portion of their income is is consumed by uh, not just uh, not just housing, but their other debts as well.
Thanks, Dominic. This has been an enlightening conversation about the home tool, recent affordability trends, and COVID-19 related impacts on the housing market. As we close, I'd like to put in a plug for the Atlanta Fed Center for Housing and Policy. In addition to offering a suite of data tools, which includes the home tool, we've also published several real estate research blog posts that explore current market conditions, mortgage forbearance uptake, and vulnerable renter households. Check back often for more home tool updates, which come out on the 15th of each month, and for more real estate research blog posts covering COVID-19 impacts on the housing market. Thanks for tuning in to another Atlanta Fed podcast, and thank you, Dominic. Thank you. This has been a production of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. For more podcasts on this topic and others, please visit the Atlanta Fed's website at frbatlanta.org.